Amen. Thank you, Jesse. Petulant children indeed is your word of the day. And then we are quickly reminded of the state of our own hearts. All right, so uh, we are here this morning and every Lord's Day morning because we believe that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day. Amen? Amen. So this morning, I am not here to debate it. I am not here to to, uh, explain it. I am here to proclaim it, that Christ is crucified for our sins. Uh, We, like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the world seeks after many things. Some are those who say, God, show me yourself. Some are those who say, give me a more compelling argument. But we say with the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is why we gather. That is who we are in him. I think it's helpful with Paul's commentary there to the church in uh, Corinth, in uh, Brian Chapel and Kent Hughes' commentary on this uh, passage, I think this is, this is helpful for us because we've almost been desensitized to the cross. You see many people walking around with cross necklaces who have no idea what it represents. You, you have this symbol everywhere that has become a, a fashion statement. But listen to what the cross meant in the days when the New Testament was written. They say here, the cross of Christianity was a scandal. It may seem incredible that people would view Jesus as shameful. I don't know what world they're living in. But both Jews and Gentiles viewed crucifixion, a penalty reserved only for the worst criminals, as the ultimate emblem of disgrace and dishonor. Polite pagan company never mentioned the equivalent of the English word cross. This is how shameful it was. They wouldn't even utter the word. The loathsome word was too obscene. And in the sophisticated Greek environment, the preaching of the cross was held to be absurd. The idea of a Jewish peasant becoming the substitutionary for atonement for people's sins was laughable. That is the foolishness of the cross. And it is still foolishness to those who are perishing. But for us, it is the very power of God. And so that will be our focus this morning, God's power, the grace of our God in the cross of Christ. And so before we get to our text, maybe this is known, maybe it is assumed, our members know this, but if you're visiting here, If you're wondering about this whole thing, we must ask the question first. Why the need for the cross? Why the resurrection in the first place? Why would we preach something so foolish as a man bleeding on two pieces of wood? Because we have to understand why we need the cross. Why a man, the God-man, would do that in the first place. 
Because when sinners put Jesus on trial, and they always have been, he was put on trial before the court of Pontius Pilate, literally. But in our culture today, he is put on trial in the court of public opinion every day. When Christ is put on trial, they don't realize what they're saying. They are coming with the assumption saying, how dare you say I need to be saved? Who are you to tell me I'm not good enough on my own? Why do I need someone else? I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'm my own God. And the Jesus that the world accepts, if he is ever mentioned, if he is ever celebrated publicly, it's not the Jesus from the Bible. Everyone loves this peaceful, inclusive teacher who doesn't want to change a thing about you. But the problem is, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And if you're visiting, and that's the only Jesus you know, buckle your seatbelt. But even before we get into our text, I want you to know why we need to be saved. Because simply, we're dead without him. Why? Because God created a world that was perfect. There was no imperfection. There was no sin. There was no death. There was no rebellion. And God created a man as a representative for all of mankind to walk with him and his wife in his complement. There was no separation between God and this man and this woman. They walked with the Lord. They heard his voice. They ate of the fruit that God created with his very hand. It was never sour. It was only ever sweet. But when this man, the first man, our first father, said, no, I want to be my own God. I choose death over following the God of life. All of creation with him was cast into a cursed state. And death became a certainty. Everything that is brought into life on this earth will die. It is guaranteed. And Adam made sure of it when he rebelled against God. So therefore, we need a first we need a new father because our first father sinned. We need a new representative because our first representative failed. Because if we don't have a new father and we don't have a new Adam, then we remain outside of the presence of God like Adam and Eve did. That is why we preach the cross and the crucifixion. And so as Paul explains this, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 5. We have to set this stage before we get into our text. I'm going to read a big chunk of Romans chapter 5. I'm going to skip around a little bit. So if you read Romans, Paul is developing this argument about how the law can't save because uh, we have all broken the law, that we must be justified by faith. And if we are justified by faith, we become sons of Abraham through faith. But in this middle section, in chapter 5, we're going to talk about, or Paul's talking about, what actually happened in the death of Christ. Here's why all of humanity needs a savior. Because all of humanity was born under a failure. 
Verse 6 of chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For those who think that they're not that bad, one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though per- perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, we have to assume, chapters 1 through 4, those who have faith in Christ are justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the penalty which Adam took upon himself and all of us. The wrath of God poured out for sin. For while we were enemies, if you think that you're good in and of yourself, you were born as an enemy of God. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Those will be two of our main points in the sermon, the abolishment of death and the bringing forth of life and immortality. Much more than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, this is Adam, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So if you're thinking in your mind, well, I'm not Adam, I wasn't there in the garden. Yes, you are, and yes, you did. For in Adam we all sinned. He represented us. It goes on, picking up at the end of verse 14. Adam was a type of the one to come, a shadow of the substance that would, that would come one day. Who is this one to come? Uh, continuing verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. This morning, we're going to be leaning into the grace of God. Grace, that unmerited favor, that, that which you cannot earn, that which you, you cannot refuse, that which you desperately need, because the one trespass means death, but the obedience of the one means life. Jumping down to verse 17, for if, because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteousness reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. The cross, the resurrection, is about the work of the last Adam, the one man who stands in place of all who will put their trust in the true and living God and his work on their behalf. He is the one man and the only man perfect in every way, who could stand in Adam's place and take the penalty which Adam placed on all of us. That is what meets at the cross. And so staying with our current series, uh, last week we looked at eight, verses 8 through 14, and we kind of uh, sidestepped verses 9 and 10. This week we're going to look at 8 through 14 and zoom in to verses 9 and 10. And every clause in verse 9 and 10 is important. It is rich, and we need to understand it, so we're going to unpack it. We're going to unpack the death of Christ that offers, it grants three benefits to us in three periods of time by the three members of the triune God. All that before dinner. All right. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I am convinced that he is able to guard me until that day, what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in awe of your plan of redemption. That you would set your love on sinners like us. Sons of our father Adam, born into rebellion, conceived in iniquity. Every sin in our mouths, in our actions, and in our heart convicts us. And just one sin condemns us. And you sent the one man who could free us. It is Christ Jesus our Lord who we preach, who we trust in, who we exalt, who we proclaim, who we anxiously await his return. The resurrection of our bodies and the restoration of all of creation to your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, more or of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Last week, we talked about this, but here we're going to lean in again. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Paul, in prison, it's not comfortable 21st century prison. In miserable prison, he says, don't be ashamed. I'm suffering right now for the gospel of Christ, and I am doing it by the power of God. Paul wants Timothy to be reminded. I want you to be reminded. You started in the gospel. Be established in the gospel and continue in the gospel because it is the power of God. And even if you suffer, It will be in the power of God for the glory of God. So when we think about the gospel as the power of God, it is our comfort, it is our confidence, and it is our marching orders. Our call to a war that has already been won. What's the worst that can happen? Suffering? Yeah. What can they do to our bodies? Because we're going to see in just a moment there is one, the one, the second Adam, conquered death. Torture me? Big deal. I've got a resurrected body coming. Bring it on. Our first point here. This is the purpose of God the Father. This is what God the Father has done before time. Verse 9. 
Remember, this is the power of God, still speaking of the Father here, who saved us. Here's the first benefit, us, to the saints, to the church, who saved us. This is a completed salvation. This is a secured justification, finished and applied on the cross. He saved us, period. The life of the believer is never in doubt. Why? Because God planned it, God did it, and God guarantees it. That is a salvation. It's not a salvation that you earn or you lose at a whim. And he did not only save us from our sins, from ourselves, but also the second thing granted to us in the gospel. He called us to a holy calling. This also is completed action, but it has ongoing implications. This calling defines our life and our mission right now, and it comes out of our salvation. Not only are the saints justified in time, but they're sanctified over time. This is our holy calling. This is our call into ministry, to be ministers of our God, the holy ones of God, set apart from the rest of the world to be his ambassadors to bring forth his gospel, to continue in his name. So when we look at these benefits, we look at the us, I think it's important. Who is the us? Who saved us and called us to a holy calling? We also live in a pluralistic culture and a pluralistic society. What does that mean? More people than they realize subscribe to the gospel of Oprah. That all roads lead to God somehow. That everyone can get to God in their own way. That is not the gospel of the scriptures. There is an us. It is clearly an us. It is clearly the saints. It is clearly those who God saved. And it's not this generic salvation that means nothing. It is a salvation that is effectual. That actually happens and actually applied. Who is the us? It is those who are saved by the grace of God through faith. And so I want to talk about for a moment. Remember we said one of the main themes of this letter is faith. The title of this series is For the Faith, Entrusted to Endure. What is faith? I want to clear up maybe what may be confusing to you. Let's talk about faith versus untested belief. Let me give you an illustration here. Faith is not believing a plane can fly. Faith is boarding that plane, sitting in the seat, and trusting that that plane will bring you home. Faith in Christ is not just saying he died and rose again. Satan can say that. Satan says that and he shudders. But faith is saying he died, he rose again, and I put my life in his hands. I know he will bring me home. That is the difference between empty belief and putting our trust in something that we will stake our life upon. Romans 10.9 describes that, that faith. 
Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, anyone can do that, that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the us. One more time. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is what Paul is talking about here. Um, complete side note, let me just tell you uh, something amazing that, that happened yesterday. Um, if you guys have not met Bubba yet, you must be new because he will find you and you'll, you'll, you'll meet him. Uh, and if you haven't gotten on, he's waving. And if you haven't gotten on um, Bubba's number yet, um, he will send you text throughout the week. And he sends encouraging scripture throughout the week. Nope, this is not an exaggeration. I am, I am typing my sermon yesterday morning. I am typing this verse into my computer. I flip my phone over. And Bubba texts me Romans 10.9. I love how the Spirit works in, in his people in such an encouragement. Um, so I just want to share that. So I want to ask you. Way to go, Bubba. Absolutely. <laughs> Can you say this? Is what you call faith true faith? Or is it empty belief? Has it been tested and tried? Do you know that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God the Father raised him from the dead? Do you place your life upon that fact? Or does it just sound good when you're in church and around other people or maybe once a year when you show up to church? And in case you're still wondering... He goes on, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works. Here we go. We've got to stop in this clause. We easily get too big for our britches and too confident in ourselves. But let's think about it for a moment. Do you really think that you can do anything good enough to add to the goodness of God? Do we really think that? Here's another illustration. The Father provides this luxurious feast of his glorious grace. And as Jesus used in several parables, an invitation goes out. And they're either too busy, or when they show up, here's, here's the parallel. When you think it's of your work, it is the most amazing feast you have ever seen. You smell it from down the street. And you show up and think, I've got to bring at least a side. And so he puts out this feast, the best meat, the best wine, the best of everything. And you open up your pockets and you're like, I got a couple pennies, some lint, and ketchup packets. Look what I've done. God is not impressed. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to add to him. But if you are his, it's because he loves you. Not because of your works, but by, by his glory. This is a real struggle for us. We can't help but define ourselves by our own efforts. We love to be defined by our work. Whether what we do for a job, what we've accomplished, our skills, how other people respond to us. Look what I've done. Everybody celebrate me. And we stand before God and say the same thing. Look what I've done, God. Aren't you proud of me? We mentioned the, or I mentioned the orphan example last week, the Huckleberry Finn type. 
who doesn't want to be held in by anyone, who who's freedom to do whatever he wants. I don't know if you've read Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn and those, those books, but what is most valuable to Huckleberry Finn? He's got a collection of teeth, old doorknobs, uh, string, and just pieces of garbage that are his most prized possessions, and he, he's always trying to trade them with people. This is what we do. I've got some string and old teeth in my pocket, God. What will you give me for it? Nothing, because you don't know what value is. Because the best, best thing you pull out of your pocket is filthy rags if it is done apart from the cross of Christ. Here's how you can tell if you have a false gospel. Let me help you out a little bit. If you are ever the hero of the gospel, it is false. If you ever add anything to or take anything away from the person and work of Christ, it is false. Because if you can add to God or take away from God, then God isn't that great and neither is your salvation. This is the problem with people who created Jesus of their own image, a gospel of their own making. I don't really need a savior. I'm only mostly bad, so I can just put the scales in my favor. But this gospel, this good news is not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Paul leaves no doubt here. This did not come from us, but it came from the Father. The Father's perfect plan and his eternal loving kindness toward his chosen ones. What does it mean that you have received the grace of God? That means you are owed nothing, you contribute nothing, yet you receive everything. This is the purpose and grace of God. That is grace. You don't deserve it, yet you receive it, and God is glorified because of it. So, this purpose and this grace of God, this is hard for people to get. Grace is amazing and confounding to the human heart because we want to be at the center of everything. What did I do? What did I contribute? I want my little gold star too. We desperately want to be validated and feel important. And if that's you, you don't like this gospel. But those who've received this grace, we love this gospel. Because it has caused those who've received this great grace to be in complete awe of how awesome God is. And say, he would do that for me? He's done that for me? He's done that for my brothers and sisters? That truly is amazing grace. And what is that grace? So look at the next line here. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Hold on a second. Which he gave us, the same people who are saved by grace through faith. What did he give us? His grace. When did he give it to us? Before the ages began. That is not a typo. Before the ages began. The grace of God. This amazing language. The salvation that we looked at just a moment ago that is accomplished in time, justification. 
on the cross, as evidenced over time, our sanctification in our calling was actually guaranteed and given us by our triune God before time. In theology, we call this the covenant of redemption. Big term for an agreement between Father, Son, and Spirit, equal throughout all of eternity, who come to a full agreement to say, I, the great I am, have a people who cannot save themselves, who need us, and for my glory, they're going to fall into sin, and I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to bring them together and reconcile them. The father would not leave a bride for his son up to chance. This is the most amazing arranged marriage before the bride was even conceived. As any, king, as any good king would do, he protects his bloodline. He says, I'm going to prepare a wife for my son. Yeah, I'm going to make sure she is pure and beautiful and holy and fit for him. This is what Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians. These will be up at the screen. We're going to look at a few verses from chapter 1 and a few verses from chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Hebrews 4.3 tells us that his works were finished before the foundation of the world. We do not serve a reactionary God. There is no plan B. He is not confused. He does not alter he is unchangeable. He is immovable. And what he decrees, he will sovereignly bring to pass. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here's our calling. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, I can't stop here, I know it's not on the screen. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that's Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is all part of God's plan, moving toward the consummation of all things, which is where we'll end. Chapter two, we know this. Here Paul's putting this together again. We often read verses eight and nine, we forget verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For... We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When did God prepare our good works? The same time he sealed our grace in his son. Because if God decrees it before time begins, it is a certainty, it is a surety, it is a guarantee that it will come to pass in time. And so this royal bloodline of the Son of God is protected for the sake of his kingdom. 
And it is so sure that God made a pact with himself because he has no higher authority by which to swear. I will have a people for myself. I have given them to my son. He will receive them at the cross and they will receive him in the resurrection. This is how sure our salvation is. Be comforted. Is it just me or is this extremely comforting? If we're so consumed with ourselves, God, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do it my way? If you don't understand how dead you are, this is not good news, but if you understand what was given you in Adam and what you have in Christ, praise God. I'm not asking questions. I'm going to keep my mouth shut, and I'm going to be grateful right here. Be comforted. Be grateful. Because our salvation is confirmed in God throughout all of eternity. And our God does not change. Praise God, he does not change depending on us. So that's what the Father has done before time. Now, here's what the Son has done in time. Verse 10. What the Father has purposed, the Son has purchased which now has been manifested, meaning what is invisible is made visible. What is unseen has become seen. The purpose of pre-existent time now appears in time. This is the beauty of the incarnation, because it is God taking on flesh. But it is the plan of God being worked out before the eyes of those who would kill him and those who need him as a savior. Titus chapter 3 brings all this together. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness, uh, two book, one book over, probably one page over in your Bibles. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, what the Son has accomplished, the Spirit has applied. This covenant of redemption is between the Father and Son, but it is made effective by the work of the Spirit, the new life being birthed in those who the Father has given to the Son. It is a renewal which he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our justification means our sanctification, and it means our glorification. Because what the Father has purposed and the Son has purchased, the Spirit preserves. That'll be our last point. But I want you to see here in verse 10, that this gospel, Paul takes a step aside in encouraging Timothy. Timothy, I know you know this, but you need to hear this. Timothy, when you are tempted to be ashamed, when you are tempted to be fearful, when you are tempted to give in to those who have a false gospel, remember Jesus Christ, because remember this, this great plan of redemption. The gospel is found in and fulfilled in the incarnate Son of God. And so in theological terms, that covenant of redemption 
is between Father, Son, and Spirit before all time, is now applied to the saints in a covenant of grace. That we no longer work. The agreement between Father, Son, and Spirit is now in agreement with us. You, whom I have chosen before the foundation of the world, you will walk in my grace because I sent my Son for you. And I will seal you and protect you forever. And it is not of your works. It is of my work. So don't be afraid. And maybe you're still asking, why? How? Jesus is fully man like us. Who would ever want to go to this this cross? This this silly, repugnant symbol of the ancient world. Hebrews 12 that Jesse read earlier. Stop looking at my notes, Jesse. Um, Why do we look to Christ? Why do we look to this Savior? This founder and perfecter of our faith. He didn't do this begrudgingly. He did this voluntarily and joyfully. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Think about it. The worst piece of torture that man has ever created. Jesus approached it with joy, knowing that he was fulfilling the plan of his father and that he was receiving his bride on the cross. This is how a husband, men, pay attention. This is how a husband loves his wife. He takes joy to go to his death that she might live. He endured the cross, despising the shame. They mocked him. They spit on him. Why? Because he would receive the price for which he died, the inheritance of nations. And he would receive his rightful standing at the right hand of the throne of God. The power that was his through all all of eternity humbled himself so that he would accomplish the redemption of sinners so that he could sit at his rightful place of power for all of eternity. This is our Savior. This is he, the one who became the second Adam. It was joy for him to go to the cross. This is why he walked on the earth. Don't ever believe the false gospel that Jesus came here to be a nice guy and a good teacher, and he just happened to be betrayed and stumble upon the cross. That is a lie from the devil. Because the only one who benefits by Jesus not going to the cross is Satan. He came to go to the cross. For us. That is the good news. This Jesus Christ, which is this grace of God, which has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who this Savior was had a passive obedience on the cross. Meaning, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, he did not fight back. He did not argue. He gave up his life willingly to accomplish his father's eternal plan. And this has two unparalleled benefits. The grace of God to us has these two amazing benefits. Abolishing death and bringing life and immortality to light. Let's talk about both of these. Number one, abolishing death. Remember our problem in Adam? Will we die? Absolutely. But if you are in Christ, you will only die physically. Some people are like, that doesn't sound too bad. Or maybe the gospel is not that important. But there's a second death. 
The second death is eternal torment under the wrath of God. That's real death. Because you only die once in this body. But if you die apart from Christ, you die every day for eternity. And you feel it. That is the death he abolished. The eternal spiritual death under the wrath of God. And here's your two options. Either Christ dies for you or you die for you. There is no in between. Because death is coming for all of us and that wicked witch is batting a thousand. John Owen wrote a masterpiece, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. This is a great summary for a litany of reasons why the death and resurrection of Christ is so important to humanity. But I love the title, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. This is why when the apostles speak of the death of Christ, it is a summary term for his sinless life, him offering up his life, him breathing his last, him rising to new life. And in that, he showed death, you can't hold me. And anyone who is in me, you can't hold them either because I have paid for them. Death is defeated by the power of the cross. This is why we preach Christ and him crucified. Because our biggest problem, death, that we have in Adam is solved in Christ at the cross. This is how we know we are free. Because if it's finished, if death has been defeated by his sacrifice, you don't have to atone for your sins. You don't have to pay penance. You don't have to walk around with guilt and shame wondering if God is going to strike you down at any moment. Because death has been abolished for you in Christ. Here's what you have to do when you get invited to that feast. Don't empty out your pockets. Humble yourself and look to your Savior. The only thing you have to offer is trust. Look to your Savior. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, 23 through 26. As the Greeks came and wanted to see what this Jesus was all about, he answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is two days before he's going to be lifted up. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus gives us an illustration, an application of his death. This is just like what you do every spring before every harvest. You kill the head of the wheat. You rip the seed off of it. And you toss it in the ground and you bury it because you know it will bring more seeds to life. This is what Christ has done. He died so that life might come from him. We don't, we don't mourn when an acorn falls, especially if that acorn is going to build this mighty forest of immortal trees, mighty oaks whose roots are tethered to the ground itself. He goes on, whoever loves his life loses it, 
And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. Here's how faith manifests itself. If you truly trust Christ, you will die to yourself. You will leave everything behind. But here's people who have empty, untested beliefs. Sure, I believe in Jesus. I want nothing to do with him in any of my life. I never open his word. I never pray. I don't care about the people of God. I don't attend church. There's no love in my heart for him. You can go down a litany of of things. If you know this grace, you would leave it all behind in a heartbeat. Do you love your life here more than you love eternal life with Christ? That's the question. Now, here's how this looks. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. What do those who follow Christ long for? To be where Christ is exalted. To be where Christ's people are. To be encouraged by the saints and those who serve him, who follow him. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is this this covenant of redemption. What the Father has purposed is applied in the cross and then worked out throughout time. How do you know who the saints are? They're the ones who love Christ and who follow Christ and are around the people of Christ. You can only fake that for so long. That's why he tells the parable of the sower. Some of you shoot up. You look green, but you're dead underneath. There's no root. It is those who fall in the fertile soil that grow over time that prove to be his disciples. All right. Let's move on. Um, Second thing. He abolishes death, and he brings to life, brings life and immortality to light. Just like death... This is not purely carnal. We're not talking about the the breath in the lungs of every living thing. This is eternal life. This is the spirit in the hearts of redeemed creatures. This is the, the breath that is given when we're born again. This is life that flows out of the grace given to us. The founder and perfecter, Christ Jesus, is the source of life himself. This is what it means to be resurrected to everlasting life. That the one who rose, he died so your sins would die. He rose again so that you would live. This is the life he gives you. The same life he lives eternally in communion with the Father. Another theological term, we are united with Christ. That means he takes our sin, we take his righteousness, and we are bound to him forever. Because he has covered us with his blood and he has called us his own. That is what it means to be immortal. If you are here this morning in Christ, you are immortal. Not eternal. You had a beginning. But immortal, which literally means without death. How is it that we who feel like I want to die every time I eat a bad meal can be immortal? Because the one we are united to is without death. And it is the quality of his life applied to us. This is the immortality that the Father brings to light through the Son. We are united to him. 
to his righteousness. That is what makes us immortal, not our goodness, but his goodness. 1 Corinthians 15. As Jonathan said, I could do this whole chapter, but I'm not. If I did the whole chapter expositionally, it'd be Jonathan's funeral and then several of your other funerals. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago, you'll completely miss that. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 58. Here's where Paul describes this work within us. This is the gospel proclamation here. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This is gospel proclamation. Gospel preaching, gospel proclamation is our king is victorious. Our king has won. Death is defeated. That old foe that reigns over every one of us is no longer. He is swallowed up in the victory of our king. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He has taken the sting from death. Maybe you've been out west, maybe you haven't. You see a scorpion, you're always kind of like, you, you, you don't want to see a scorpion. But why are we scared of a scorpion? Because of its stinger. If there's no more sting on a scorpion, it's just an ugly little creature, almost kind of cute. <laughs> Death has been robbed of its stinger. It has nothing left. It looks scary, but it can do nothing to you. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, saints, hear these words. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That is what our Savior has done for us. And we are free to work now that the real work has been done on the cross. So he brings this life and immortality to light. Just like a flashlight. At the same time it shines light, it banishes darkness. This is what our Savior has done. Wherever it shines, there is light and no darkness. This is the shining of Christ into history and into our hearts. Who has banished the, de the, the, the darkness of death that reigns over us and will shine in us forever. And we end where we started. He has done this through the gospel. This completes the bookend of our passage. The end of verse 8, the gospel by the power of God. Now we see the gospel again. No other religious system offers any certainty. Ask them. You can tell a lot about someone's faith by you ask, what happens after you die? What assurance do you have? They all have faith in their own works. It's all up in the air. It all depends on me. Maybe I've done it good enough. You ever talk to these people who are like, well, God's going to understand. You know, he knows I've tried to be good. No, he doesn't. He knows how wicked you are to you, the core of your heart. The gospel gives us trust in the work of Christ. That is what our faith is in. So when you feel beat up, when you feel discouraged because your works aren't up to par, and they aren't, go to Jesus. 
You put faith in his work. By his grace. Which was given to you before eternity. So how does the Christian now view death? Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. Praise God, for their deeds follow them. These are those good works that you've done in Christ, prepared for you beforehand. We're those weird people who say you're blessed to die, to be absent with the body and present with the Lord. It's crazy talk, unless you know our Lord. Paul kind of brings all this together in Romans 6. So I'm going through a lot of parallels here because I want you to be encouraged. As saints, Christians, I want you to be encouraged. Any non-Christians in here, I want you to be terrified. But this, this is encouragement. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, the, the, the parallel of baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's that shorthand, death, burial, resurrection. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This describes the people who have died and who have been raised with Christ. This is an encouragement coming off the heels of justification in chapter 4 and um, the new Adam in chapter 5. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For death, he died. He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he now lives to God. So you also. Brothers and sisters, so you also. Must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. So our third and final point, which will also be our conclusion after all this is accomplished, we know this. This is the fact and the assurance of the gospel. What does the resurrection mean for the Christian life? Now what we see with the Father purposed, the Son purchased, and the Spirit continues to preserve. Here's the rest of our passage here in 2 Timothy. This gospel, verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I believed. Do you get it now? We looked at verse 9 and verse 10 in such depth. This is who Paul believed in. This is why he went to prison. This is why he went to Rome to die. And he's not ashamed. I am convinced that he is able to guard me until that day. The same spirit that brought him to life guards him now. This eternal plan 
that protected him and carried out by the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that rose Christ from the grave now empowers Paul and Timothy and every saint throughout the ages has been carried along by the Spirit of the true and living God and equips us for ministry. One more time in Romans, because you can't talk about the gospel and not go to Romans. And you can't talk about the good news and not go to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. It's pretty clear. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, don't fear the first death. Fear the second death. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. That is the end to the second death for us. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, Paul says it twice, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the good news of the resurrection. The Spirit of God raised the Son of God from the grave. And those who are united to the Son of God, that Spirit raises them to new spiritual life. And one day will raise us to eternal life in our restored bodies. For the glorious celebration that we have with the God who planned for us to be the bride of the Son. Also in Romans 8, verse 26 through 30. So what do we do now with this, this resurrected life, this new life, this spirit that's within us? What do we do when we're confused? What do we do when we're afraid? What do we do when we don't understand and, and, and we doubt and we fear? Jesus says, it's better that I go because I left my spirit with you. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. How do I know if I'm in the, I'm in the will of God, Pastor? Pray. And if you have the Spirit within you, he will lead you to the will of God. And the will of God is not what girl to date or what college to go to. It is pleasing God in every area of your life. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew and also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is the day that Paul is speaking of. I am convinced that he is able to save me, to guard me until that day. What's the day? The day of glorification. His resurrection means our resurrection to new life. The day when Christ returns, the day when he will judge the living and the dead, the day when he will bring about his kingdom. His Holy Spirit preserves us until that day. The war is won. Even though the battle rages on, we have our invitation to the victory feast. And no, you don't have to bring a side. Jesus has already provided the entire meal. 
So I want you to see the grace in the gospel of God. Here's a quick summary. The gospel is the preexistent grace of the Father, the manifested grace of the Son, and the continued grace of the Spirit to save a people for himself. The gospel is the preexistent grace of the Father, the manifested grace of the Son, and the continued grace of the Spirit to save a people for himself. Let me leave you with this. For the one who follows any other gospel and thinks he doesn't need a savior, the first death and the second death reign over you. If you are like Adam in the garden, I would rather choose to be like you, God. I'll take life and death. You only get death. There is no life for you. But brothers and sisters, for the one who follows the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what the resurrection means for you. It means we don't have to fear death because our Savior conquered death and he lives forever. We don't have to fear man and what happens to this body because he's given us a new one. We don't have to fear pain or disease or hatred or jealousy or envy. It won't last because all this crap won't make it to the home he's preparing for us. We don't have to fear our own sin because it was nailed to the tree. We don't have to fear the sin of others because it's all going to be destroyed one day. We don't need to atone for our sins. We don't need to seek vengeance against others. We don't need to be burdened with guilt or shame. We turn from our sins. We believe that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that he is faithful and just to forgive us. And here's the other thing. You are not incomplete or lacking anything in your salvation. God has given us his abundant grace in Jesus Christ before, the, before time began. And he's given his spirit to remind us again and again and again when we forget and when we fear and when we fall. Let's pray.